Hi, Jim. Good to see you again. Um, we're back for our second part of our episode on the 400 years between Old and New Testaments. And Jim, when you arrived at church today to record this episode, uh, I felt as though I, I almost heard you before I saw you because I heard this this music and I saw <laughs> this car and I thought, wow, like this this guy really loves his his tunes. It was you blazed into the car park. Um, it was quite impressive, really. Do you always play music that loud in your car? I, I'm afraid I do. Uh, I should say it is a an ancient BMW X3. It's not <laughs> not exactly a, a sports car with a top off. Um, yeah, but I, I do listen to music very loudly. Uh, one of the blessings of living out in the countryside is that I can uh, blast Shostakovich Fifth uh, Symphony at three o'clock in the morning uh, at top volume and nobody uh, complains. Yeah. yeah, it was fairly clear to me that it wasn't sort of hip-hop or anything. I, I think it was something quite niche that you were playing. It was. I... I uh, it was a a, a guitar duo. Okay. I, I I heard this piece of guitar music years and years ago, and I, I made the classic mistake of I liked it, so I bought the album. Okay. And uh, but I, I quite like it. I mean, it is a, a little strange. It's a Spanish um, guitar duo. <laughs> of course, it's strange. I mean, that doesn't surprise me in the least. And I would encourage you to keep playing it at that kind of volume. <laughs> it uh, it lifts my spirits anyway. Um, but a very warm welcome uh, to all our listeners as we continue our, our series on the gospel, um, on the gospels. We're now into season eight, remarkably, and this is episode two of season eight. And in our first episode, we started thinking about the historical context in which the events recorded in the gospel take place. Uh, so we've been thinking about the so-called intertestamental period, and that's the 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament. I just wanted to say, uh, I think at the start, Ollie, uh, about why all this history matters. And you know I'm obsessed with history, but um, the main reason why it matters is there is a terrible risk that Christians, young Christians, think that the events in the Bible operate in a parallel universe. And so one of the things we're, kind of, we're trying to do in these uh, first two episodes is to show how the history of the Bible interweaves with the history that people have been taught in school. Um, uh, but I think I've, 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 the whole thing got slightly out of hand because <laughs> our original plan was to complete it uh, in one episode, but we only got about two-thirds of the way through. So, so this is part two of the historical introduction to the Gospels. Uh, in order to connect the Old Testament timeline to the New Testament, you need to think about three great empires, uh, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire, uh, and we only made it to the Greek Empire last week. Yeah, and I expect this will probably get extended into a into a third, fourth, <laughs> and a, a fifth at this rate. No, no, Jim, this um, we will finish today. <laughs> I promise. Okay, that's a promise. You, yeah. we, we heard that. We all heard that, Jim. So we're we're banking on it. Um, but just as a quick reminder, we thought about Persian rulers like Cyrus and Darius and Xerxes. Uh, in our first episode, and, and all of those individuals are mentioned in the Bible. Cyrus allowed the Jewish captives in Babylon to return to Israel, and he even helps fund the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. That's right. The return from exile uh, actually takes place in four movements over a 90-year period. Uh, it takes nearly a century for them to return, because it starts in 536 BC and it ends in 445 BC when Nehemiah returns as governor, having rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. And for the next century or so, the Jewish community had to rebuild a civil society. 
It took many decades for a country shattered by the exile to stitch itself together again, um, to, to weave the fabric of their culture. There were tensions between the people who returned and the people who had never left. And there was also a lot of disillusionment around because the society they lived in didn't look anything like the beautiful visions of the messianic kingdom painted by the prophets. So around about 330 BC, this amazing figure called Alexander the Great exploded onto the world stage. And we talked about him briefly last week. He conquered all of the West and East in an astonishingly short time. And then he died when he was just 33. But the influence of Greece on world history isn't measured best by Alexander's conquests, is it? No, the, the true legacy of Greece can be summed up in the word Hellenization. Alexander's world empire was quickly carved up into three dynasties. There was Greece itself, there was the Seleucid dynasty in Syria and Asia Minor, and there were the Ptolemies in Egypt. And all three of these dynasties promoted the idea of a Hellenized culture. In other words, a common language, ways of trading, philosophy, even names and, and clothing. Because here's the thing, the Greeks invented the idea of what we might call polite society. In other words, to be sophisticated and cultured, was to be Hellenized. By about 250 BC, the three big Hellenistic kingdoms had settled down into some sort of stable order. And last week, we traced the impact of those kingdoms on Israel's society. Uh, the Ptolemy kingdom in Egypt had responsibility for Israel for about 100 years. And the process of Hellenization continued, although the Ptolemies weren't as forceful as the Seleucids in how they pressured the Jews to conform. It was during this time that anti-Greek factions sprang up within Israel society. The Hasidim were the first group. Uh, they spawned another group called the Perushim, uh, or the Pure Ones, and that group eventually morphs into the Pharisees. A second group, uh, called the Zedekites, forms throughout this period of history, and they eventually will become known as the Sadducees. It's sometimes said that the Sadducees were essentially secular, but that, that's not quite right. Uh, the Sadducees were always associated with the temple, so the high priest was nearly always a Sadducee, think of Caiaphas. Um, they wanted to maintain the status quo. Don't do anything that might mess with temple life, was their motto. The Pharisees, on the other hand, approached orthodoxy from a different direction. They centred their lives on the study of the law. When we get to the end of this episode, we'll see that after the temple is destroyed in AD 70, the Pharisees are the only theological grouping to survive, and they form what we now call Rabbinic Judaism. And we talked last week about a famous moment in Israel's history that highlights the conflict between Judaism and Hellenism. It was the Maccabean Revolt in 167 BC. Jim, tell us how that came about. Well, at the time, the ruler of the Seleucid dynasty was a man called Antiochus IV. He's sometimes called Antiochus Epiphanes, and he's regarded as a sort of antichrist figure in Jewish history. Uh, he had marched right to the borders of Egypt. He was threatening the Ptolemy dynasty when he got a ticking off from the new big dog in the region, uh, the Romans. They told him to go home because they quite liked the balance of power in the East. Antiochus was humiliated and so on his way home from Egypt, he stopped off at Jerusalem and he behaved really badly as we thought last week. Uh, and that started off a rebellion against his Hellenization program. And amazingly, the rebels, the famous Maccabees, won the day. And so for the next century, Israel existed as a quasi-independent state ruled by the Hasmonean dynasty, which came from the original Maccabee family. And to their credit, the Hasmoneans refused to become kings because they were Levites. They weren't from the tribe of Judah. So they said they would rule until the Messiah came. And that brings us up to about 60 years before the birth of Christ. 
But you mentioned the Romans just now, Jim. So we need to put a pin in Israel's story for a minute and go back again to 250 BC so that we can put the final piece of the jigsaw in place. And that's the rise of the Roman Empire. We can motor pretty quickly through the story, uh, but it is important to understand just how the Romans ended up ruling the the entire ancient world. It's an amazing story. Uh, And those of our listeners who have read Shakespeare will know a good deal of it. So Rome starts off, as we might expect, in Italy, uh, but it took control of bits of Spain and the big islands such as Sicily and Sardinia. And its early history is dominated by the so-called Punic Wars, uh, which were waged between Rome and the Carthaginian Kingdom. The Bible tells us about cities called Tyre and Sidon, and they were the headquarters of a group of people called the Phoenicians. Uh, Well, a long time earlier, the Phoenicians had established a powerful colonial city called Carthage in North Africa. And the word Punic is the Latin for Phoenician. Okay, And the first Punic War started in about 250 BC and ended up in Rome's favour. And it is the second Punic War that's famous. I'm sure everybody uh, listening has heard of it. Because the Carthaginian general was a man called Hannibal. And he famously looped around southern Italy by travelling to Spain and then bringing his army, including his elephants, uh, over the Alps into North Italy. We do love an elephant on the podcast. We do, yes. Uh, We remember Hanno with great affection. Absolutely. Um, Anyway, Rome's allies in the north started to to defect, and Rome became within a hair's breadth of being destroyed. But fortunately for Rome, they had their own brilliant general, a man called Scipio, and he came up with the brilliant plan to ignore Hannibal and instead sail across the Mediterranean and attack Carthage itself. Hannibal had to rush back, but Rome sacked Carthage and famously sowed its land with salt to make it infertile. I feel like in another life, Jim, you would have been in the military, maybe some sort of planner or strategist. Uh, You're fascinated by it. I am. Well, I mean, I do come from a military family. Okay. My grandfather was in the First World War. My dad was in the RAF. Okay, it's all all making sense now. Yeah, yeah. And I'm obsessed, as you know, with the Battle of Waterloo. (laughs) (laughs) We really should do an episode on that. We should. Christmas special, perhaps. (laughs) Be a little self-indulgent, I have to say. Anyway, this third and uh, the third and final Punic War, uh, which is why I started talking about all these wars. It's really important because it involves the Greeks. Okay, so we're now at about two hundred BC, and this time they joined the Carthaginians and fought against Rome, and Rome never forgave them for that. And so, fifty years later, in one fifty BC, Rome invades Greece. And, and defeats Greece. And so the first of the three Hellenistic kingdoms falls to Rome. The Seleucid and Ptolemy kingdoms remain for quite a while after Greece itself falls to the Romans. But the demise of the Seleucid Empire has big implications for Israel, isn't it? It does. In about 63 BC, a famous Roman general called Pompey was summoned to the Senate, and he was given two tasks. First, he was told to clear out all the pirates from the Mediterranean Sea because they were wreaking havoc on trade. And secondly, he had to deal with a rebellion away up in the northeast of of Asia Minor, near a place called Bithynia. Uh, I think it's mentioned in Acts. Anyway, Pompey succeeded in both tasks. But the presence of his Roman legions at the border with the Seleucid Empire upset them. And so stupidly, they marched against the Romans. And without ever setting out to overcome the Seleucids, Pompey overran them and marched the whole way down to Egypt. And while he was in Antioch, he became embroiled in the politics of Israel. The Hasmonean dynasty at that time was ruled by a queen. She had two sons who were vying for the throne once their mother died. So they travelled to Antioch and asked Pompey to choose between them. One of the brothers was much weaker and less competent than the other. 
so Pompey chose him on the grounds that he would give Rome much less trouble. But the stronger brother became enraged and galloped back to Jerusalem where he barricaded himself in. It was a potentially disastrous moment for Israel because Pompey could easily have besieged Jerusalem. However, when he arrived with his legions, the citizens of Jerusalem wisely just handed the enraged brother over to Pompey and welcomed the Roman into the city. But Pompey's actions when he was in the city horrified the Jews. He walked around the temple and even went into the Holy of Holies. He was amazed that there were no statues of a god in that holy place. But that action led to the Jews calling Pompey a defiler of Israel. They regarded him a bit like Antiochus Epiphanes a hundred years earlier, a sort of antichrist. Now, remember that these events took place only 60 years before the birth of Christ. So the memories would still have been raw uh, when Jesus was, was here. So by 63 BC, two of the three Hellenistic kingdoms had fallen to the Romans. Just to finish the story then, Jim, how did the Ptolemy kingdom fall? Well, we're in well-charted territory here, uh, because the next 30 years were full of turmoil and pain for ordinary Roman citizens because of civil wars, three of them, and the transition from a republic to an empire. So Pompey uh, returned home as a hero, uh, and he and two other men formed what is called the First Triumvirate, Pompey, Crassus, and Julius Caesar. Now, Crassus gets killed by the Parthians, who were the descendants of the Persians in the east, So three became two, and soon two became one. Julius Caesar had a dispute with the Senate, and he brought his legions into Italy, uh, shall we say, to concentrate their minds. And that's where the phrase crossing the Rubicon comes from, because Caesar's soldiers crossed the river of that name. That's right. The Senate dispatched Pompey to resist Caesar's march, but he failed and fled to Egypt, pursued by Caesar. Now, the Egyptians didn't want to upset the Romans, so when Julius Caesar uh, shipped docks in Egypt, he's presented with Pompey's head. And it's at this time that Julius Caesar forms a romantic relationship with the woman we know as Cleopatra. Anyway, when he returns to Rome, the Senate reluctantly gave him the title dictator, Okay, which meant literally that his dictates automatically became law. But he was only given this title for six months. Okay, But Julius declared that he would remain as dictator until he died. Very well, said the Senate. There's only one way to square this circle, and that is to end Julius Caesar's life. As Shakespeare said, beware of the Ides of March. So on the 15th of March, 44 BC, Caesar was surrounded by a group of assassins who stabbed him to death. We're now getting closer and closer to the birth of Christ, but at this stage, Rome is still in turmoil, isn't it? Absolutely. Caesar's assassination triggered a second civil war, uh, which his followers eventually won. So a second triumvirate is formed, and this is made up of Julius Caesar's adopted son, a man called Octavius, a general called Lepidus, and the famous Mark Antony. Now, Octavius was an administrative genius. Uh, He must go down in history as one of its most successful political rulers. Uh, Unlike Julius Caesar, uh, Octavius was was diplomatic. The Roman Senate loved him, and eventually the triumvirate became a single ruler. Uh, Octavius invaded Egypt when Mark Antony was seen to be, you know, undignified and a disruptive influence because he had married Cleopatra. They had two children, uh, magnificently called Sun and Moon. (laughs) (laughs) And when Antony asked for them to have to be given some territory, Rome dispatched Octavius. So the Ptolemy dynasty fell in 30 BC. Mark Antony and Cleopatra committed suicide and Octavius won the day. I'm sure some of our listeners are a little confused because Octavius is not a well-known name. Why is he so famous then? Well, in 27 BC, the Roman Senate changed his name. 
they conferred an ancient religious title on Octavius and he became known as Augustus. This is commonly regarded as the moment when the Roman Republic turned into the Roman Empire. On Augustus' advice, the Senate bestowed divine titles on his late father, on Julius Caesar. So Augustus was known, in the East at least, uh, as the Son of God. Augustus ruled for a really long time, for 41 years, uh, from 27 BC to AD 14. All this history helps us appreciate how the Romans must have reacted to the language which people used in the Gospels to describe the Lord Jesus, Son of God and Jesus is Lord. These claims would have sounded political in the ears of Roman citizens, wouldn't they? Yeah. In Asia Minor, Augustus was often worshipped as a god, even though he himself discouraged people who wanted to give him divine titles. But he was worshipped because he brought order and peace after decades of unimaginable pain and chaos and turmoil during the civil wars. Augustus established the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. He dealt ruthlessly with crime. He made travel safe. He extended the road system. Life for ordinary people was improved immeasurably after the chaos of the civil wars. Let's now zoom in on Israel's history once more then. Augustus had a major impact on the events we find described in the Gospels, didn't he? Yes. In Israel at that time, there was a wealthy Edomite family uh, who had lots of political connections. The head of the family was called Antipas, and he was a personal friend of Augustus. And as a result, he was given the title, the King of the Jews. His son, uh, who we know as Herod the Great, uh, ended the Hasmonean dynasty and, uh, uh, from, uh, in AD 37, and he ruled Israel uh, thereafter. He's called Herod the Great because he modernized Israel. He brought it into the first century, if you like. He, he built roads and aqueducts and entire cities. And he spent a king's ransom on extending and beautifying the temple in Jerusalem. He covered it in marble and gold. Now, it was still the second temple that Zerubbabel had built after the exile, but Herod expanded it, made it into one of the wonders of the ancient world. Herod the Great also built pagan cities and temples for all the Greek and other Gentiles who were living in Israel at the time. So we read in the Gospels of Caesarea, which was essentially a pagan city within Israel. That's right. Herod the Great ruled from 37 BC uh, to 4 BC. Uh, now, his title isn't earned because... To be honest, the man was a paranoid, ruthless dictator. He assassinated some of his own sons in order to preserve his grip and power. And we get to know him in scripture because of that terrible event recorded in Matthew, when Herod orders his soldiers to kill all the male infants under two years old in Bethlehem, because he regarded Jesus as a rival to his title of King of the Jews. That's right. The dates here can confuse us, because Herod the Great's reign ended in 4 BC. But scholars that I trust argue that Jesus was actually born in about 6 BC. So the calendar we use is about six years out. And I'm sure we can talk more about dates in a later episode. But as a warning shot, I'm going to argue that Christ was born around about 6 BC. Okay, I'm sure that will uh, generate a few questions. Um, but let's conclude now, Jim, by finishing off the story uh, about Herod's family. It, it's really confusing because there are a lot of Herods in the Bible, right? <laughs> yes. Herod the Great had a lot of sons. I think it's something like 18 by 8 different wives. Uh, but we're only going to concern ourselves with three of them. So his son Archelaus was supposed to be the next king. But the other sons appealed to Augustus, who reduced the territory that Archelaus controlled. Uh, and so Augustus gave Galilee to another son called Antipas. Uh, and Herod Antipas is the man Jesus called that fox, if you remember. Um, 
uh, it's this Herod who ordered the beheading of John the Baptist and questioned Jesus as part of the Lord's trial. Meanwhile, Archelaus made himself so obnoxious to the Jews that uh, I think around about AD 6, they appealed to Caesar, uh, who, who sent him into exile and made the bulk of Israel uh, a Roman province ruled by a Roman governor. So that's why we have a Herod ruling Galilee and a Roman governor called Pontius Pilate ruling the bulk of Israel during the Lord Jesus' ministry. That's right. Just to finish off the story of the Herods, there are two more mentioned in the book of Acts. There's Herod Agrippa I and Herod Agrippa II. Now, Agrippa I is the guy who puts Peter in prison and he ends up being eaten by worms. I remember that delicious story as a child. Uh, And then Agrippa II is the king Paul addresses in his climactic speech at the end of Acts. Now, there's a really sad postscript to this whole story, Ollie. Um, The paranoid granddaddy, Herod the Great, um, poured vast amounts of money into the beautification and extension of the temple in Jerusalem. You remember um, the awestruck tones uh, in which the disciples talked about these great stones. But work on Herod's temple didn't finish until AD 63. But seven short years later, the entire edifice was torn down, raised to the ground. And most of the Gospels record Jesus' prophecy of that exact event. How how did it come about then? Well, as we have seen, um, Jewish society was like a boiling pot. All sorts of tensions were just ready to boil over. There were tensions between Jews and Romans, uh, between Jews and Greeks, tensions between rich and poor. Some groups like the Zealots wanted to stir up an insurrection. Uh, think of Simon the Zealot in Scripture. Um, others, like the Essenes, uh, decided to withdraw into uh, a monastic life. They were essentially monks. Uh, the Sadducees wanted to maintain the status quo, and the Pharisees wanted the freedom to study the law. Well, in AD 66, in the city of Caesarea Maritima, some construction work was authorized on the town synagogue. And while the construction was going on, a temporary entrance was created in a side street. And a mischievous Gentile set up a pagan shrine on this street. So the Jews had to walk past a a pagan sacrifice. And so a riot broke out. And that civil unrest started to spread all over the country. And the Roman governor of Israel lost control. So he appealed to the governor of Syria, who had Roman legions at his disposal. The legions went about their work with their usual ruthless efficiency. And soon only Jerusalem was holding out. So they besieged it. Now, the Roman general in charge of the operation was called Vespasian, and his assault on Jerusalem got interrupted uh, when the emperor Nero committed suicide. And that triggered real chaos in Rome. I think it was called the Year of Three Emperors. So Vespasian returns to Rome and is crowned emperor. And he sends his son Titus to finish Jerusalem off. Titus completes the destruction of the city in AD 70. All the treasures of the temple were carried off and brought back to Rome. And if you ever visit Rome... Go to the Titus Gate and you will see a carving of that moment. Um, and, and with awful irony, the wealth of the Jewish temple was used to fund the construction of the Colosseum. And that terrible moment had a massive impact on Judaism, didn't it? It did. I mentioned earlier the four groups that represented different approaches to orthodoxy. The Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots and the Pharisees. And only the Pharisees were left standing. And so from AD 70 onwards, they morphed into what we still today call rabbinic Judaism. It was a paradigm shift in their religion. Um, The book of Acts, uh, which was written just before Jerusalem fell, I think it's designed to prove that it is Christianity and not Pharisaical Judaism that is the true heir to the Old Testament promises. 
So anyway, we will stop with all my history. Okay, um, th th that's the historical context in, in which the Gospels are written. I mean, it is a long and painful story uh, from Persia to Rome. But through it all, God's grand plan of salvation unfolds in unhurried majesty. As Daniel prophesied, the great empires of Babylon, Persia, Greece and Rome would rise and fall. But the great stone that represents Christ's kingdom would never fall. Rome is not the eternal city. The new Jerusalem is the eternal city. Thanks, Jim. We managed to get that done in two episodes. So, Jim, tell us what we're going to be looking at next week. Uh, we are going to examine the quest for the historical Jesus, or sometimes called the quest for the authentic Jesus. Um, so we'll have to engage with uh, a lot of critical scholarship uh, in next week's conversation. Brilliant, brilliant. Thanks for your time, and thanks for listening. We'll see you all again next week. Thank you.